Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hello Anne, welcome to another episode of Unemployed Workers Fight Back. This week we're speaking with Labor MP Jed Carney, the member for Cooper. Uh, We're talking about full employment. Now we recorded this interview at the beginning of June, however the interview is still relevant for the conditions at the moment, even though things are changing a lot. We're always ahead of the curve, Kevin. (laughs) Well, so what's been happening since then? We've gone into the second lockdown here in Melbourne. Um, I think everyone's feeling a little bit glum about the whole thing because we're all stoked for getting out of the house and then suddenly we're all back inside again. What's happening at the moment is everyone's got plenty of time to sit at home and educate themselves about the possibilities because I'm actually feeling quite hopeful despite the whole health situation. On the economic front, we have such a vision for a better world. Well, they always said there was going to be a second wave, and this second wave has shaken the smugness. We now realise that this is going to be a long-lasting episode. I think a lot of people were kind of semi-hopeful that things might just return to normal, and it's becoming more and more mm-hmm. apparent that this is going to be a long and drawn-out affair. So a lot of the conversations that we've been having about the job guarantee are becoming more and more relevant. And if you read the papers or you have your eye out for it, modern monetary theory and the solutions that it offers for the economic future are becoming a hot topic. What you often hear is, oh, the government can choose the unemployment rate. Well, what about when there's a pandemic and the unemployment rate doubles overnight? Is the government still choosing the unemployment rate? The bottom line is the government has no fiscal constraint because it's the currency issuer. It can purchase all the labour that's not being used. In other words, it can choose the unemployment rate at any time. Kind of makes a mockery of the natural rate of unemployment that the uh, neoliberals talk about. (laughs) The solution to the problem uh, that we face at the moment, the economic uh, problem that we have, uh, comes back to jobs. The economy is only going to repair itself through jobs. And so we were quite happy to hear that Jed Carney shares some very interesting views on full employment as a way forward and certainly as a way out of this current economic crisis. So let's uh, throw over to the interview that we did with Jed Carney. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. On 3CR's Unemployed Workers Fight Back, we have Jed Carney, who's the local member for for Cooper. So I'll tell you a bit about um, Jed. She was uh, raised in Richmond. Sounds to me like she comes from uh, something of an Irish Catholic background. And the reason I say this is because her name is uh, Geraldine Mary Carney. 
she'd probably get on very well with my sister, Mary Geraldine Gaynor. So there you go, um, who was <laughs> born around the same time. So uh, in the early 1980s, uh, Jed studied economics at Monash University, but then switched to nursing. So interesting to note that you have uh, some sort of background in economics there. In 1985, Jed qualified as a registered nurse, uh, also gaining a Bachelor of Education along the way. Uh, and this was just before the nurses' strike in 1986. So I guess that would have raised Jed's uh, awareness to certain issues. In 1997, uh, Jed was elected as an official of the Australian Nurses Federation and worked her way through being a federal secretary, a federal president, Victorian branch president, until in 2010 she was elected president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU. She considered running for a couple of seats and eventually ran in a by-election replacing David Feeney in the seat of Batman in 2018. David Feeney was uh, disqualified because of his citizenship back then, but uh, he was also a bit on the nose in the electorate, uh, is my understanding. Alex Bartell, who was the Greens candidate, had been running in that seat for quite some time. And when Jed contested the seat, uh, there was only a 1% margin. But uh, since then, there's been another election and the seat is now, again, a safe Labor seat. So Jed has won that seat quite convincingly and and returned some stability for the ALP in that area. Uh, She's currently the Shadow Assistant Minister for Skills and the Shadow Assistant Minister for Aged Care. So welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, Jed. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was a very comprehensive introduction. You reminded me about things myself that I'd forgotten. It's good to know who we're speaking to. (laughs) Now, the reason we're speaking to you, Jed, is because you've been involved in discussions regarding full employment. This is an area which interests us quite a lot here on this show because there's a kind of understanding of of what full employment is. Mm. Uh, Currently, we have people talking about levels of unemployment at 4.5 or 5% being acceptable, Uh, There's also underemployment, and there's also a history uh, in Australia where we've had many different levels of employment. So what's your view on what a a suitable or an acceptable level of unemployment might be? Well, the whole concept for me of full employment was garnered from the uh, Nugget Coombs white paper that he wrote for Curtin and then Chifley, of course, implemented it um, after Curtin died. And the whole concept basically is that a government should work to make sure that everybody who wants a job can get a job. Uh, That is not always possible, of course, but during those years post-war when the full employment policy was in play, unemployment sat around 2.5%, 2%. It never really got above 3%. People often say to me, oh, yes, but, Jed, that's because um, women weren't in the workforce, participation rates were much lower. But You must remember that we absorbed 2 million migrants in that post-war period under the same full employment policy. So I don't accept that argument outright. If you ever get a chance to read the white paper, I think uh, Nugget Coombs explains it beautifully in that the, the policy is good for individuals, good for workers, of course, because they have meaningful work uh, that gave them a living. It was good for businesses because people had money in their pockets And in my view, it's demand that drives an economy and that if people actually have money in their pockets, they go out and spend it. Particularly, we know working class people spend all their money. They can't hive thousands of dollars off in the Cayman Islands and things like that. They actually spend it in the economy. It's good for agriculture. It's because people can afford to buy decent food. It's good for local manufacturing because people can actually buy locally produced goods. So there's a whole uh, framework that comes with that why it's good for the economy. How you get 
employment, Kevin? I think there's a number of things. Everybody immediately goes to direct government employment. Well, it's not only direct government employment. That's an important part of it, I think. But there's other things like supporting local manufacturing, co-investment policies, procurement policies, making sure that local manufacturers, local food growers, etc., local suppliers actually have local markets, that you actually do chase progressive taxes and that you do have a progressive tax system. In the post-war decades during the 1950s and the 1960s, there was a, a political will to create policy that provided full employment, uh, firstly for the returned servicemen uh, and then for the millions of immigrants who moved to Australia. And then after the 1970s, this political will seemed to disappear or evaporate. Can you explain this, this change? Well, it, you're quite right. It is political will and it's a framework. That's what I say. It's a state of mind of a, of a government, if you will, that that is going to be their main aim. And of course, we saw uh, the advent of corporate power, the rise of uh, Hayekian economics thoughts, neoliberalism uh, was lurking around there. And then I think the big opportunity for, I guess, that shift to the right in economic thinking came with the oil shocks in the 70s, the oil crisis, where, I don't know, there's a number of theories, Kevin, but if you're interested in my sort of view of it, I think what happened was that the economies were so reliant on oil that the shock of not having oil, of the supply being blocked just through economies into chaos, particularly the US economy, to some degree the Australian economy. And in some instances people lost their faith in the government to be able to control and manage these things. There was a bit of a loss of faith in institutions and the neoliberal ideologues flew in and started to, to really undermine, I guess, good old Keynesian types of economics and produced the term stagflation. We suddenly saw them uh, ridiculing the government's role and being able to intervene in the market and the whole free market thought started. They really used the shocks of the oil crisis to intervene and, and introduce the free market concept, which, of course, we know it was got nothing to do with government intervention. It was uh, a whole range of things about being, uh, oil being withheld from the, the Middle East. I love seeing these parallels in history. So I think about that 1970s oil shock and it's like never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think now we're in a crisis with this lockdown and it's like, and not let this one go to waste either. That is so true. I was thinking about this very thing last night. We've just had a crisis. The response, though, has been a government interventionist one, uh, which is a little bit the opposite of what happened in the oil crisis. And it's an opportunity for us in the progressive side of politics to say, whoa, you need government intervention. You do need institutions. You do need a good public service. You do need a health system. You know, all of these things we do actually need. And for me, there's this big opportunity for us on the progressive side of politics to actually introduce some new theories and thinking. So I agree with you. It's an unfortunate historical coincidence that whenever Labor comes into power, there seems to be a world economic crisis following. Whitlam came in and we had the OPEC oil shock during the 1970s. Hawke and Keating had to deal with the recession of the 1990s. Just after Rudd and Swan came in, we had the global financial crisis. So it's an interesting twist of fate that the coalition now has to deal with this current economic crisis. It is, Kevin. And uh, I was doing a little bit of research for this interview last night and I came across a press conference that Gough Whitlam did when he, I think he'd actually been to America and he came back 
and they were hammering him because unemployment had reached 2.7%. <laughs> Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It really does. But the thing is, you're quite right. Suddenly they were attacking him and blaming him for this crisis, which really had very little to do uh, with anything that he was doing. You're quite right. So uh, let's hope that, you know, when unemployment gets up to 10% here, which is what they're predicting, that maybe we'll have a similar reaction. You're listening to a 3CR podcast of Unemployed Workers Fight Back, where we interviewed Jed Carney in early June of 2020. Uh, and we were speaking to her about full employment, but this is nothing new. This is something which has been done before, particularly in the post-war years. And it's uh, interesting to hear Jed reflect on that period. That part of history, that narrative is kind of being fought over at the moment because the post-World War II era, which is looked back upon as a sort of golden age of economics, people want to explain how that happened so that they can look at a way of getting from a dire situation back into another golden age. And so everyone's trying to capture that narrative, put their explanation front and centre. So I'm going to steal Jed's line (laughs) about that it wasn't the fact that women weren't working there. That wasn't the reason why we had full employment, given that we actually took on uh, all those immigrants that she was talking about who were washed up out of World War II. So there must be another reason why you can get to full employment. I'd hazard a guess and suspect that there might be some government will required uh, to pick up the slack, especially when the private sector is failing. There's been this overemphasis on the private sector driving the economy since the 1970s. Yet what we're seeing is that you need the government sector to at least pick up the slack to ebb and flow to provide the stimulant when the private sector is failing. If the private sector fails and people can't keep a roof over their heads, they can't afford to pay their mortgage, they can't afford to pay their rent, then you're looking at an economic collapse. It can be quite scary, you know, not knowing where your next mortgage payment or your rent payment's going to come from. And also perhaps being quite heavily in debt through credit cards or whatever. And what we have to remember is that experience of household debt and financial insecurity is nothing like the experience of what the federal government has in its relationship to money because the federal government issues the currency. So any so-called debt that they are racking up is actually not something that can cause them, it shouldn't cause anyone a sleepless night because they can always pay it off. I'm becoming increasingly aware of this relationship between a government deficit and private borrowing, you know, Um, When the government is investing in its population, which is to say it's spending, private debt doesn't seem to be an issue. And private debt came to a head after the surpluses that were run by the Costello uh, budgets under Howard during the early 2000s. Government deficits have got a really bad name, but really that should apply to government surpluses. And so we can think of the deficit as the investment that's going to be needed in the economy. And at the moment, this pandemic is revealing the extent to which an investment is needed when the market itself collapses, so when the private enterprise collapses, as it is doing at the moment, then the only player in town (laughs) who's going to be able to do anything about this uh, with Morrison and Frydenberg at the helm. They're going to lead us out of this, Kevin. We can just see it coming. They're going to lead us out of this with a job guarantee. Introducing a national job scheme like a job guarantee is a very left-wing policy. Uh, But the strange thing about Australian politics is that sometimes it takes 
the party from the opposite persuasion, like it takes a right-wing party, a conservative party, to introduce socialist policy, like a job guarantee, and and they've done plenty of socialist things recently, and it takes a left-wing party to introduce conservative policy. I think this is um, Kevin's law of historic irony. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, Keating brought in all of these these uh, conservative uh, economic uh, agendas. So the Hawke-Keating era, like who knew that it would be a Labor government that would actually undermine the union position? And now what do we have? We've got Comrade Morrison there thinking about uh, making sure that everyone has a job, making sure that the government is going to do the spending that it needs. We hope it's going to be a universal offer. That'll be one of the uh, signals to watch out for, actually, is to see is what we are now calling the inevitable job guarantee, is that going to be a universal offer? And I'm going to be very interested to see how that one works out. Of course, when you and I speak about the job guarantee and we're talking about uh, an employment program funded by the federal government that absorbs any unemployment from the private sector. It's an MMT, modern monetary theory uh, policy. Uh, But we've been speaking to Jed Carney, who, as a Labor politician, seems to have some very similar ideas about the, the consequences and the impact that full employment might have on the economy. So let's continue that conversation with Jed. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Let's have a look at uh, what's known as the NIRU, which is the Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment. It's a, a rate of unemployment that is deemed appropriate to keep inflation in check. The logic being that if you have a pool of unemployed, it will put downward pressure on wages and that will keep inflation constant. It's regarded by orthodox economists as a legitimate measure, uh, but others see it as a a way of keeping unemployment artificially high. What are your thoughts? And where do you think the unemployment level should sit? I've never really quite understood what they call the Nairu, and it sounds like a real weasel word, the concept. But, you know, there are some economists that assure me it's a real thing, Jed, that, you know, we need to have unemployment around 5.5%. I think it's an artificial construct. I am not an economist. I did study a little bit of economics, as you said, at university, but I think it's a way to sort of try to control wages. If you keep a certain amount of people unemployed, there's always going to be a little bit of competition in, in the labour market. I question that. Like I, you know, who says that that's five and a half percent or, you know, that high? Um, I was uh, listening to um, Wayne Swan the other day. He may not be everybody's favourite um, economist, but uh, he was saying that there's no reason we can't have unemployment below 3% again, like we did for 30 years post-war. There's nothing really to prove that it would have an inflationary impact. But back to your question, I just, I just think we need to really question that construct, that concept. So if we could keep unemployment below 3%, I think there would be a range of amazing impacts with that. You know, people with disabilities would be more likely to be employed. There'd be a whole raft, I think, of excellent economic outcomes and personal and social outcomes. But at the moment, as you know, unemployment is measured. Is it one hour per week? Yes. Yes. I think that is how we measure the employment, which to me has always been amazing as well. It's an international standard. I think the basis behind it, and I heard an economist speak about this the other day, is that there's a good understanding that the unemployment rate at the moment doesn't reflect the 
the utilisation of employment, but they use this this figure because it's been standard for a long time. Mm. Therefore, even though they know that it's um, entirely inaccurate and doesn't really reflect the situation, it's a constant marker that they can use. That's right. And so then we look at underemployment, which we know has been double figures for a long time, uh, the number of people having to work two and three jobs just to make a living or that really want or need extra work for whatever reason. We know that insecure work is absolutely rife, which leads into the whole problem of underemployment, but that insecurity associated with precarious work makes for a very fragile economy. You know, you're not knowing if you're going to get a paycheck next week, you can't buy a car, you can't buy a house, you can't negotiate just about anything with the bank if you don't have that ongoing employment. There's the issue of people being forced onto ABNs, independent contractors, I remember when I was at the ACTU, there was a situation where a whole call centre, I think there were about 50 women worked in this call centre, mostly women, they were all sacked and then offered their jobs back, exactly the same jobs, if they came back with ABNs, hired the desk, paid for their own phone calls, brought their own equipment with them, did exactly the same job but took all the financial risk of that employment on themselves, no super. The whole point is that that issue of financialization, where all the risk of the economy is being placed on individuals, I think is not a good thing either. You know, once where truck drivers used to be employed by big logistics companies, now they have to buy their own truck and take all the risk. That number, like when you hear that number of 4 or 5% unemployment, and even now, you know, the number is supposedly 6.2, but what I have heard is that they also don't count people who don't say they're looking for work. So if people say I'm not currently looking for work, they're not in that number. Correct. So post lockdown, that number is actually of core unemployment is probably closer to 9.7%. But even those numbers, like you're saying, they don't reflect all of that insecurity and the imposition of risk, as you say, on workers. That's absolutely true. And you know, participation rates can have a huge impact on the actual numbers. And if you're told to stay indoors and that the pandemic's going to be right for a while, you're not going to be out there looking for work. So you're absolutely right, Anne. I hadn't thought to add that. The conversation around how wages drives inflation and how we need to have a pool of unemployed to keep inflation in check by keeping downward pressure on wages. In terms of inflation, that to me seems rather simplistic and that we're ignoring the the demand for, for particular items. Uh, we've seen it with housings. Good housing is always in short supply and so house prices go up. But milk and bread are in constant supply uh, and they remain constant. And we're seeing it right now with things like hand sanitizer and face masks. They're in short supply, so the price goes up. It's got nothing to do with wages. It's got to do with constraints on supply. It's not wages alone that creates inflation. Mm. We need to look at the broader picture and and see how uh, the economy works as a whole with demand and supply. I have heard these arguments. I have actually heard the Reserve Bank Governor talk about these sorts of things. So I think that, yes, you're right. The view of inflation has changed and it is starting to reach mainstream thought of economics, I would say. Whether or not that's influencing the, the neoliberal economists, I don't know. But certainly it's changing the views of many of our institutions around the economy. It's the same thing about giving corporate tax cuts and the whole trickle-down theory now is being really challenged broadly, don't you think? You know, that the way you get people jobs is to give corporations tax cuts and uh, and they'll employ more people. Well, it just hasn't worked for 30 years. It hasn't worked. <laughs> 
So people are starting to challenge that. You know, even my kids understand the concept of trickle-down theory and say, oh, you know, it doesn't work, Mum. There is a, a bit of a sea change then. I think so, Anne. I think so, and which I think is a good thing. And then there comes along the crisis where we have a government that had to spend like the bilio to, to keep the economy stimulated. So maybe we're getting there, you know. <laughs> You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on 3CR. This week we're replaying an interview that we did in early June with local MP Jed Carney, who has some views on full employment. The simplistic orthodox view on wages and inflation is that if you have low unemployment, it will put upward pressure on wages that will push inflation up. On top of that, you've got this conservative view that if you look after business, that they will share their wealth uh, down through the community. And the best way to support workers is for the wealth to trickle down through the economy. Rather than trickle down economics, there's a conversation developing around trickle up economics, for want of a better a better term. And it's the, its basis is that there's virtually full employment with a foundation of people working, doing meaningful work, at the very least, um, at the minimum wage. So we're not talking about crap jobs. Crap jobs can go to automation. That's okay. Bring in the robots, bring in the the conveyor belts, that's fine. Uh, So long as the people who are unemployed as a result of the automation are then redeployed into meaningful work. And if the things that they're doing are better jobs, more meaningful jobs then they've got money in their pocket. And if they've got money in their pocket, they're going to go and spend it, especially people earning lower wages because they need more things. They've, they've been, they don't have the flash houses with all the mod cons and, and the great car. They've got uh, ageing houses and, and cars that need repairing and furniture that needs fixing. So they will spend into the economy and that will create demand, which then trickles up through the economy because that demand is then met by production supplies, by industry. So if people are buying things, tyres for their cars, new couch, new fridge, fixing things up, occasionally going out uh, to, to see a movie, out for dinner, that creates demand. And demand then trickles up through the economy to the suppliers who provide that, which is great for industry. So again, we're finding that by looking at the economy through the correct lens, everything's turned around and everything that we thought was supposed to how things were supposed to work is actually the complete opposite to how it should be. Knee bones connected to the elbow bone in all of this macroeconomic stuff. And you know, I really like the way Jed referenced trickle down economics because it's one of those great images and one of those really great ways of framing that have really stuck in the in the sort of the collective consciousness. And the problem is Sure, a lot of people are questioning that and are not really convinced that it really works, but we're still waiting for that, what they call the paradigm shift. We're still waiting for the next visual, the next image, the next way of thinking about the economy to come along and replace that because until you've got something to replace it, it's really hard to talk in terms of alternatives. And so that alternative is all around how do you manage unemployment and how do you manage inflation? So those are the two grand problems that macroeconomics tries to deal with. The government is there to uh, to offer secure employment to anybody that needs a job, and it mightn't be the greatest job in the world or the highest paying job in the world, but so long as it's a good job, that creates confidence. And once you've got confidence, then everything picks up because people uh, have expectations and are secure that they can plan 
things for the future. And it might just be a simple thing like going away for the weekend or possibly a minor renovation or something like that. It, it creates certainty, which, which is really good for the economy. It all comes back to jobs. I'm willing to talk to anyone who's willing to talk about full employment, and that's why I loved hearing from Jed. And I feel like that she's sort of a good example of someone who's shifting into a new paradigm because conversely, I, I was really fascinated by what she had to say about how precarious employment, which she described really well, how that actually leads to a fragile economy. So in fact, it's everyone's problem when workers, you know, they don't know uh, if they're going to have shifts in the next week, they can't plan for their future, they can't get loans to buy houses or whatever. And so it's everyone's problem because at a macro level, the whole economy becomes more fragile. And we've seen that with the pandemic. We've seen how people are just a paycheck away from being kicked out of their houses or whatever. And so the government has had to step in. And so we've seen you know, how the government is the primary player in terms of keeping the economy ticking over, not the rich people and not the corporations. You know? And it's, it's good for the, the society and it's good for the individual as well because, if you know, you could always walk into a job guarantee office and get a job and you can start taking risks in life. So you can start going, oh, I want to see if I can um, uh, get my band going or I want to see if, you know, am I interested in doing graphic design or is it not really for me? And you can go and do a course and try it out and if you sort of make mistakes in life. I remember, you know, in my 20s, it was like, oh, you could try out different career paths and see what would suit you. It wasn't like you just had to latch onto a job and hang on to it for dear life. That was the beauty of the, um, of the Whitlam, Whitlam era free university education. All these people went and did courses without having to worry about whether it was the last course they could ever afford to do. So they'd try stuff and they'd find something uh, invariably through, uh, through experimentation that suited them far better than what they might have thought which leads to great progress and in, in innovation in, in society because you've got people who have the confidence to start something without feeling obliged and stressed that it's going to wipe them out if they don't succeed at it. So there is the possibilities, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of a, the climate crisis, you can still see the possibility if only we could use the currency issuing capacity, which is the capacity simply to organise our resources, including labour, and then we can think about how we'd like to organise them. So let's continue our conversation with Jed Carney, former president of the ACTU and current federal member for Cooper. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. wondering around your um, writing and your thinking now about full employment, would you go so far to say that employment is a right, as is declared in the UN um, Bill of Rights? It is a right. And, you know, we support the United Nations Bill of Rights and everybody has the right to a dignified job. I think the thing is, it can't be a job at all costs. You know, I'm watching very carefully this newfound interest in the government to negotiate with the trade union movement. You know, suddenly, They've dropped all their union bashing bills that we've had to fight off for 10 years. All of a sudden, oh, no, we'll put those aside and we're, we're going to talk to the trade unions. But I heard Christian Porter on the radio the other day when they challenged him about this. Sally McManus says that it's not just jobs that they want. They want good paying, secure, decent jobs that give you the dignity of having a livelihood. 
And he's like, oh, no, I think, you know, really we just need to increase jobs for now, you know, just it's the quantity of jobs that we need. Right. There's another dimension aside from that quantity. It's actually um, the role of work in people's lives. That's right. So, yes, it's one thing to say people should have a job, but it's another thing to say what that job is and the dignity that it gives you because if it doesn't give you a living, then it's exploitation. What jobs could the government look at creating to accommodate full employment? I mean, you you could have a look at what has been done in Victoria under the Dan Andrews government. I mean, he immediately employed 1,100 more nurses. He boosted up the ambulance service. He made all the casual workers in the public service permanent workers. Uh, You could increase the public service. We could actually staff Centrelink. We could actually have a properly funded and well-resourced social services sector These days we have all these employment services which are all uh, privately subcontracted out and strangely they work better if people are unemployed. So it's in their interest to make sure that people are unemployed so that they've got clients because they get paid pro rata. Back in the day, and I do recall this, uh, when I first left school I was unemployed, you'd go to the CES, you'd look at the job board, you'd find a job, you'd go and get an afternoon's work, it would lead to more work. It seemed very simple and it was all run by the government. A lot of these things that you're talking about uh, is reversing the privatisation drive that's been going on for the last 20 years or so. I think there are some services that should be run by the government. There are some services that the private sector may do better. But I think the services like you're talking about, putting a profit motive on them immediately creates perverse incentives that you described. They say that the private sector does it cheaper, that they do it better. But my experience has been that you'll get a a very conservative government in and some Labor governments and they run down the public service. They don't give them proper IT. They don't give them enough staff. They don't resource that service. So, of course, they look like they're doing poorly and then they say, oh, the private sector can do it better, we'll we'll privatise. That seems to have been the cycle. Or they've had massive utilities like the SEC here in Victoria, uh, which we all know in the 80s they carved up and sold off and, in my view, It didn't deliver anything they promised, didn't deliver cheaper prices, didn't deliver more jobs, and it didn't deliver quality of service. In fact, the opposite of all those things occurred. An example of that is the cutbacks in maintenance to high-voltage power lines running through the bush, which then contribute to bushfires. Mm. So, yeah, I think we really need to question privatisation and the benefits it's given, and uh, I think there is definitely a role for public service in running those services that you described, like job services. I'm interested in the care sector. We have an increasingly ageing population. Uh, There's a lot of domestic work that has been regarded as not work because it's unpaid. And yet if those activities uh, ceased, it would have a a fairly enormous impact on our economy. So is there any scope to expand some of the traditionally care or domestic uh, work that's done into something uh, of a full employment scheme by the government? I don't see why not. Well, there's what I call the care economy, which are those professions that are paid, that are predominantly feminised, quite low paid, becoming more and more uh, insecure, like aged care, like disability services, some nursing jobs, not so many, but some. That sort of care economy, I think we really need to professionalise. We need to make sure they get paid more. We need to make sure there's enough of them and we need to secure those jobs and elevate their status in the the economy. I think that would go a long way to securing people's lives and boosting the economy. I think what you're talking about is unpaid care work. Yeah. 
If the unpaid work that's done these days, say it might be for whatever reason, but you might be looking after an aged relative or you might be unable to work because you have somebody with a disability that needs care uh, and these are, are not paid positions uh, and yet by any other standard they um, they would attract an income. Uh, it, there wasn't a connection. It's also to say that if these people weren't fulfilling those roles, it would fall back on society to look after these people anyway, uh, which would have a cost. So... I'm just wondering whether you see that as an area which might be included in a full employment scheme. Oh, absolutely. I don't see why not. Of course, you can get a carer's support pension now if you have someone with a disability or you are caring for someone like you described. But I think that we could certainly look at how easily that's accessed. I had a constituent come to me recently, Kevin, if you don't mind, I can quickly tell this story. She had um, a young man who was kin. She wanted to take him in and look after him, but he would have required high care. He was a troubled kid teenager and she asked the government for a carer's pension because she had to pay a mortgage. She was working full-time but she would have had to give up her job to really put the effort and time into this young man to help him. She could not she could not qualify for a carer's pension to look after her nephew and so she said well I'm sorry I can't give him the time and attention that he deserves and so he ends up in community care where that costs $200,000 or whatever it does a year to look after him when really they could have given that woman a carer's pension and he would have been in with kin, loved, cared for. He would have received better care and it would have cost less than, than the alternative. Much less. And I'm sure the outcomes would have been better. So, yes, I think in answer to your question, we, we do have to look at that system and I'm sure there are ways that we could invest so much more in that type of arrangement and caring. It could make a world of difference and particularly for women, because as we know, women predominantly are the carers. And I think that definitely it would make a difference to that gender gap. You know, I remember my mum, I don't know what year it was, maybe in the 70s, when my mum got her first child support payment. I think it was Gough brought it in, that the payment had to go directly to the mother. My mother thought this was Christmas. It changed her life. And because I actually remember it, it had that bigger impact on me. Um, that she was so proud that she was getting some income for supporting us and caring for her kids. And so I think it does make a difference and we really have to look at it seriously. You're right. We've just had a whole season of bushfires uh, come through uh, and there's a lot of attention on the environment at the moment, uh, particularly with uh, Indigenous land management, uh, etc. Would these be other areas that we might be able to look at to fund for um, employment programs? I had a wonderful conversation with a gentleman yesterday, Patrick O'Leary. Patrick, if you're listening, I hope you don't mind me verbaling you. And he works for an organisation that does Aboriginal land management. And he rang me because he read an article that I wrote on full employment in The Age recently. And he said, this is exactly what we could utilise, exactly. I think he has about 800 jobs supported now by the federal government caring for land. And he said that could easily be doubled, tripled. You know, we could do wonderful work looking after our parks, our waterways and using Indigenous ranger models, for example. Yeah, I think it fits in beautifully with that and there's already models out there where it's working, so why not look at expanding it and, and really embedding it? Jed, I feel like you've really got the vision there, like you're describing how we could expand the public service or the public sector and into areas that we're not doing, like caring for the environment, and you're talking about resourcing the public sector and expanding the way we make our social security payments. So I really feel like you've got the vision for how an economy could work for people. And I guess my question is, how are you going to pay for it? 
Correct. That is always the question. And of course, it will take a readjustment of federal and state maybe expenditure. There's two things that I will say about that. If you look at Victoria, where in a small way, this government has pretty much implemented a lot of the things that I would say, massive infrastructure spending, increase the public service, free TAFE, which is, would of course be part of a full employment policy is access to education and training, increasing our healthcare services, investing in the public sector. Pretty much they're doing it and the state is booming. In my view, you have people with money in their pockets, people who spend money, you turn the economy over and it's good for everybody. So it actually helps expand the economy. Secondly, yes, government expenditure will increase, so you will need an adjustment. We have to really examine our taxation system. Some of the hugest companies, multinational corporations in Australia who don't pay any tax. We have to start looking at that and looking at the loopholes that exist we're currently in a situation where there's been a, a health crisis which has led to an economic crisis and there's been unprecedented, I'm going to use that word, unprecedented government spending to address the issue to the tune that they've now just happened to have a, an extra $60 billion floating around that they um, hadn't factored on. Uh, I didn't hear any talk about borrowing money from overseas or raising taxes uh, or any impediments to come up with that funding. To a similar degree, um, post-World War II, when Australia had uh, a massive um, wartime deficit, there wasn't any talk about how funding a full empl- employment program back then was going to work. It was, it, it was not, not seen as an issue. This talk about um, how we're going to pay for it, we seem to have consensus across many different areas of uh, economic thought here, where we have, have a, uh, an orthodox conservative government who doesn't seem too concerned about um, the debt. I mean, if they were overly concerned about the debt that was going to be incurred by addressing this crisis, they wouldn't have spent the money. So it, it obviously makes sense for them to spend the money. We then have progressive uh, economists, uh, such as uh, Wayne Swan, Andrew Lee, uh, who uh, and the people from Per Capita, who I think you've spoken to, Emma Dawson, etc., who say that even if you take a uh, an orthodox view on on debt and deficit, it's not an issue. Uh, and then we have um, heterodox economists, people uh, from, say, modern monetary theory, yep. Bill Mitchell and Stephanie Kelton and some others. Great thinkers. Who have shone an entirely new light on uh, debt and deficit, um, and they certainly don't think it's a, an issue. So this whole discussion about debt and deficit and, uh, and and the implications for future generations seems to have been discarded by every side of economic school of thought at the moment. Why is it an issue? It's a very good question. It's been an issue that it's been made an issue for 10 years or more of this government who uh, just used it to hound the Labor Party after the stimulus they implemented during the GFC which of course is tiny compared to what they've just spent. So they have made debt an issue. I think we need to start reframing the whole concept of debt so that people aren't quite so frightened of it. Let's face it, it was on the Herald Sun, front page of the Herald Sun, debt, 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 debt and deficit, the whole thing, till the point where people became terrified of it and didn't really know why, I guess. It was the major war cry of the um, of the Abbott government. Absolutely. It's the same government. We have many of the same ministers, but this was their main issue, their main agenda mm. Uh, mm. three terms ago. And now for some reason, that reason being that they realise that uh, when you're in a crisis, governments need to spend, uh, the issue seems to have evaporated. Well, let's hope it stays evaporated because my big fear, Kevin, is that the government will pursue an austerity budget in the near future to sort of say, oh, now we've spent all that money, good, good, we're going to have to pay it off. And 
I think that we're going to have a hard job to stop them running down that line. I'm very nervous that they will run an austerity budget after all of this, just to say we have to pay off the debt, we have to pay off the debt. And it will be an excuse to cut public services, to cut funding. It will be an excuse to just slip back into the old frame. Uh, And I'm, I'm very worried about that. Well, let's have a look at some of the macroeconomic implications of running a full employment scheme. Now, when we say full employment, we're talking uh, 2 or 3%, and that that percentage of unemployment is what we'd call transitional uh, unemployment, people in between jobs. There's a job waiting for them. Now is just not the right time for them to be employed, and so you have this residual uh, amount of of unemployment. If we have a look at the example of, um, say, the the bushfires and employing uh, rangers to manage uh, country and we can avert having bushfires in the future, then it seems pretty obvious that a small investment into uh, Indigenous land care is going to save millions and millions of dollars down the track. Can we discuss some of the other macroeconomic or the broader um, implications of running a full employment program as opposed to uh, running a, an unemployment scheme? Well, I guess you've raised a very important one. I mean, it's the issue of climate change and, and tackling the climate emergency. And of course, full employment doesn't only mean government intervention. It can be, of course, in private investment and governments being savvy enough to know how to attract the right investments that are going to create full employment and help the economy. We could look at things like there's a plans for a massive wind farm to be built in the Bass Strait. You might have heard about that, Star of the South. Enormous wind farm, thousands and thousands of jobs, maybe 10,000 construction jobs and like a 1,000 ongoing jobs for the Latrobe Valley looking for projects that actually create work and create jobs. You could then building or helping build a manufacturing hub around that wind farm. So you could actually plan to have jobs for the Latrobe Valley where you place manufacturers down there, you give incentives for manufacturers to build there. They've got the energy lines right there from the wind farms. It's it's sustainable, you know. So you could actually uh, have a government that co-invested again in manufacturing like we used to have with the automotive industry where we know the multiplier effect of the automotive industry was huge, you know, which we just lost all of that when co-investment came out of there. Uh, You, of course, would invest in research and technology with the universities and make sure that universities had money to do research with industry so that we had jobs created through that process and those links were seamless and and easy to do. And and I'm not dreaming about this. These do exist now in very small pockets here and there. You could just have a government that knew how to actually leverage that and make it on a grand scale. So Australia could lead the way in research and development. We need to develop other industries, new industries of the future, like hydrogen, screaming out for us to actually get into that and really push that. Of course, that would be a sustainable energy source as well. So you could... Do agriculture. Agriculture is something we really need to focus on because there's wonderful things happening in in agriculture that makes it sustainable, renewable and value add. Oh, don't start me about value add, right? We shouldn't just be digging up dirt and sending it in trucks overseas. Shall I keep going? I mean, You're painting such a great picture of all these opportunities for um, either government partnerships or government investment. So it's like looking at the challenges and seeing the opportunities. It, it really is. It's so much. We've been speaking with Jed Carney this week uh, on Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Thanks very much, Jed. Your insights sound very promising and uh, it's been great to have you on the show. So um, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's been a great pleasure indeed. Thanks for having me and really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Jed. This is Jed Carney on 3CR, Unemployed Workers Fight Back. 
You've been listening to a podcast where Anne and I interviewed Jed Carney, the federal member for Cooper. Uh, We spoke to Jed because she has some very similar ideas to Anne and I regarding full employment. Of course, Anne and I come from an MMT background, uh, and so we have this concept of a job guarantee. Uh, And I think Jed is speaking the same language in many respects. Kevin, I really like hearing those concrete examples of jobs and what they might look like because it just helps me to visualise in my head what people are talking about when they're talking about full employment and the kinds of jobs that need doing. But my caution is always to try and remember the difference between what might be public sector work and in that case it would attract a tiered wage system and a career path and so on. So the difference between public sector work and then job guarantee work and job guarantee work is there really as a safety net, like as a bottom line job that you can go to if there's nothing else available. But if the government was seriously funding all these things that need doing, including the caring industry, which I would see more as a public service job or a public sector job, uh, then you would have less people in the job guarantee. Yeah, of course. Now, we didn't um, ask Jed to speak specifically about the job guarantee. Um, We were just interested in her views on full employment in general. I was quite pleased to hear her promote regenerating the public sector, about reversing privatisation and getting some of the the basic uh, instruments of government back into government hands, things like health and transport and energy and that sort of thing. So there was SEC and the telecom and you had the border works. They're all government uh, organisations which have all been privatised and split up. But some of the workmanship that you used to see through telecom and through the SEC, because they had the time to do the job, they did it properly. The workmanship was spectacular. It was really good. So things didn't break down. Things were safer. And, and there are certain aspects to the way we operate as a community where you want that quality. You don't want your energy service compromised. It needs to be good. The same with communications, etc. So the job guarantee isn't competing with public service jobs, but there might be a pathway to move from a job guarantee into the public service, especially if we start reversing the failed experiment of privatisation and increase the public service. The job guarantee would appear to be a program very well suited to replacing the job keeper program because the government has to transition uh, out of what they're doing into something. and This would be a really good program. However, I get the impression that a conservative Morrison government that's used to bashing the unemployed and using them as a scapegoat would turn a job guarantee program into something like a work for the dole program. It's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to offer a degree of flexibility It's that whole voluntary versus involuntary thing and I think they're going to err on the side of involuntary because you can design it so that it enhances people's lives. It could be appropriate to regions so people would find jobs within their own communities. They don't have to go travelling to either a outback area where they're they're being asked to work in some kind of regeneration project and they're not being asked to go into a city either and work in some office building they're actually being offered job wherever they are so if you're in a remote community you will get an appropriate job for your life there and if you're in a regional town you'll get a job there and if you're in the city you'll get a job there 
So my concern is that they won't be so careful about those kind of nuances. You can see them butchering it. You've got to go with what you know. And what do we know about uh, Conservatives is that they are anti-government intervention. They uh, like to use unemployed as scapegoats. They've never been particularly generous in this sort of thing. However, we also know that they're in a bind. They've got to come out of the job seeker and job keeper program. And coincidentally, we've got job seeker, job keeper. We've now got job trainer, this new program they've just come up with. And what was Bill Mitchell's program called? The job guarantee. So <laughs> it, would, it even fits their marketing quite nicely. I can just see, I can just see job keeper turning into the job guarantee. But then I can see them screwing down job seeker and making it absolutely miserable. Yeah, so that leads into my other concern, which is uh, that they've got a, a $1.6 billion a year industry to deal with in the form of the employment services so-called industry that the unemployed people are supposed to report to in order to get their payments. And I can't see them deprivatizing that. So what I can see is that they will use that industry as a means for rolling out something like a job guarantee. And the problem with that is that you need to change the whole culture of that industry. It's like you need to have the people in those offices seeing themselves as finding the most appropriate position for the person who walks through the door. And so I'm a little bit concerned that they'll just be looking at quotas and going, oh, I just have to get this person into any job guarantee job. I don't care what it is. And so they'll be pressuring people into all sorts of unsuitable work. Uh, And so that dynamic might still remain there. And that would end up giving the job guarantee concept a bad name when, in fact, it's nothing like work for the doll and it's nothing like this make work or workfare stuff. It's actually looking at meaningful work that is tailored to individuals. I mean, here's now a whole industry that we need of people who are good at careers counselling, they have good interpersonal skills, they've got a lot more um, empathy and a lot more knowledge of the system in terms of helping people navigate to get the best outcome for them. We want people to be advocates for the person walking through the job guarantee door, not some kind of adversary as it is now where you're fighting them, you know, not to ruin your life. The government really needs to lift its image in this area. And I wonder if uh, Scotty from marketing can come up with something better than where the bloody hell are you? I see blue skies above the job guarantee. (laughs) Yeah, this mob have a bit of a uh, reputation for empty rhetoric, you know, words without action. And they're going to spend a lot of time trying to do that and look like they're not doing it. (laughs) So they're, they're, they're going to be putting a lot of spin on all of this for sure. Yeah, how about something unique like uh, just providing a good service and seeing whether that might improve your reputation? Could be a good start. Anyway, Anne, we're reaching the end of the show. We have to wrap up because Mafalda's coming up next, as per usual. Uh, We need to sign off and let people know about the Unemployed Workers Union. Uh, We need to thank Jed Carney for interviewing with us and to let people know that the full interview with Jed Carney is available as a podcast via the 3CR website, uh, you can send us an email to give us some feedback. What's the email address? RadioMMT at gmail.com. Just say hello. Well, we've got to go, in. I'll see you next time. See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests... And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine.
Oh no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on the show. It was uh, very pleasurable for me. Oh no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you're having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but uh, I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did. I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have to say, it was Suicide in a street that has no trees. I am the one in 